Welcome to the Consume Church Weekly Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this message, The Lion of Judah, by Pastor John. For any further information about this message or the ministries of Consume Church, you can check us out at theconsumechurch.com. So we've been in uh, a bit of a series here called To Know Him, and it's just, has anybody been blessed by that? Has has it stretched you at all? Has it uh, maybe um, built up your your faith and built up your understanding of who Christ is? Yeah, maybe. (laughs) I know you guys are seasoned believers and know the Lord and love the Lord, but I just felt so impressed uh, that our greatest... Uh, accomplishment in life. Our, our greatest goal, the, the, the greatest thing that we could ever do is to really know Jesus. And nothing else really matters that much. Everything else is secondary to knowing this one. So uh, we've been talking about the different uh, themes, the different titles, the names, the, the, the meaning behind the things that Christ is called in the scripture and things that we say thematically. So we talked about the son of David and last week the good shepherd. And I was going to do the great high priest. It's very technical. And uh, the Lord kind of rerouted me on Monday. And, you know, sometimes it doesn't make sense. But uh, in the moment, then you go, oh, okay. So the Lord's up to something different. But anyways, today I want to talk about the lion of Judah. I know we're, we love songs like, hey, Sylvia's got a lion shirt on. Uh, we, we love the hail, hail, lion of Judah. We love singing those songs. Uh, and we roughly know and have an understanding of what that means. I mean, king of the jungle, the, the lion figure is the, the ultimate predator, uh, the one that has ultimate authority over everything wild, right? Uh, and I think our, our understanding can be based in that as we look at him as the king of heaven and earth, uh, but I want to dig a little deeper, and I've noticed that there's this thread the last couple weeks that the Lord's talking about, we're talking about prophecies in scripture, and really the prophetic gift itself is more about promises than it is about predictions. I think uh, other religions and, and uh, paranormal activity where there may be someone that could read the, uh, you know, your fortune or something like that, all of those are predictive. They're not promises. But the, the, the prophetic words and utterances in Scripture and the ones that we, by the Holy Spirit, utter out, they're actually based in the promises of God. It's actually the procession of the voice of God that has life. It's living and active, right? Sharper than any two-edged sword. And it actually has the ability to go in and separate the way we think from what is going on in heaven where our spirit, from soul and spirit, right? From our spirit where it's connected to the Holy Spirit and actually bring the light of what's going on. And uh, we talked about how uh, Jesus and his coming and every one of the gospel writers would talk about how Christ uh, arrived and the things that he did were according to the scriptures. And John goes so far as to call him the word of God the Logos of God, the word that was actually with God in the beginning and was God. So I had fun looking at that, that it's gone from the beginning of 
of creation, even uh, from the, the fall of man and the repercussions, has committed himself to send his word with humanity. That the promise of God that this will not last forever, that I will restore, I will redeem, I will remake and rebuild, has always been traveling along with mankind. And we've discovered this, and Paul says in 2 Corinthians uh, 1, verse 20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen, our amen to God for his glory. Amen? So that you actually have the word of life. You actually have the word of God partnering and moving in your flesh. Moving in between that place where your soul and spirit are. And today, we're going to actually impart and release that stuff, but that'll be at the end. Man, that was some great worship, Jeffrey. Thank you so much. Lauren, thank you so much. Eric. There he is. Good job. So, but our text for today is actually out of the book of Revelation. Anybody excited about that? Yes. The book of Revelation, chapter 5. Like my graphic? Yes. You'd think that for the Lion of Judah, you would see a big lion's mane. Not so, says John in the book of Revelation. If you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation 5, and we also have it here on the screen. Revelation 5, and verse 1 says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? Dramatic pause on purpose. <laughs> And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. Remember our first sermon in this series was you got to look at it. Nobody could even look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Juba." Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne." Now, I don't know about you, but when I was a new believer and just be bopping along through my scripture reading routine and get to the book of Revelation and, you know, I, my mind got left somewhere behind. I'm like, I don't even know what is going on here, but I want to try to unpack for you what's going on here. But this is one of the, probably the only place in scripture where Jesus is referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's the only place. Now, there's another place in Scripture that talks about Judah being a lion, and we'll look at that too, but this is the only place that calls him that. So basically what we have here in Revelation 5 is we have a view into heaven, and it's the throne room of God, and we have the Father sitting there with a battle plan rolled up in his, in his hand. 
Oh, I skipped one. Heaven is actually, um, some of us have imagined that heaven is like a static place where there's, we see in the book of Revelation, thousands of thousands and 10,000 times 10,000 and everybody's just worshiping. And we have imagined that heaven is the place where forever we're just going to stand before the throne and just worship and worship and worship. And I think that there's some of that for sure. But what we see in this passage of Scripture is something very different, that heaven is not a static reality. It's not a portrait that's just sitting still. Heaven is actually a project that's going somewhere. But in heaven, there's actual work to be done. It's the work to rescue the creation from the deadly dangers that have taken root within creation itself. It's the work to overthrow the forces that are out to destroy the very handiwork of God. So the father actually has a scroll in his right hand and like an architect with the building plans or like a general with the uh, campaign plans of battle, he's holding this and he's like, who can I trust? Who can actually open this to read these plans? They are secret battle plans. The scroll is sealed with seven seals. It contains a secret plan to undo and overthrow the world-destroying projects that have already gained so much ground. I'm, I'm quoting some N.T. Wright to you right now. And to plant and, na- and nurture instead the world-rescuing project, which will get creation itself back on track in the right direction. So we see in heaven that there is actually a battle plan. There is this rescue project going on that the Father is holding and saying, somebody needs to open this and implement this plan. And they cry out, who's worthy? Is there anybody out there that deserves to open this scroll? And it says that nobody in heaven, nobody in earth, not even patriarchs that have died that are under the earth are actually worthy to open this scroll. There's not anybody, not anybody that themselves haven't contributed to uh, the problems that is actually causing the spoiling and trashing of God's beautiful world. The way that God actually designed the world to work is through obedient humankind. So think of Adam in the garden and Eve in the garden, that the way in which our creation was actually designed to work was through obedient stewards. He hasn't changed his mind about that. The way in which the world works was designed to have a human being or human beings actually in obedient relationship to the Father to carry out his will. That's why we pray your will be done on earth as in heaven. And his battle plan and his building architectural blueprints have the secret plan that he's written up to get mankind back on track to stewarding his creation and undoing the work of the enemy. Amen? You're like, now that's a little bit different gospel than I heard because the gospel that I grew up with was all about me being evil and God just sparing me from death in hell forever. Well, I'm telling you, there's a whole lot more to the gospel than that reality. The reality is that he's remaking and restoring and redeeming everything that was broken and lost. That's better news. I I talked to somebody the other day and uh, (laughs) they have a mentor that is like a big John Piper fan. 
There I am name dropping. Maybe you don't know who I'm talking about. But, um, but anyways, it, uh, they told me that they didn't understand most of the Bible and they have to keep going over it with this guy. And I didn't want to offend his uh, sense of biblical foundation, but you can't understand the Bible because it doesn't make sense like that. <laughs> it just doesn't go anywhere. I'm telling you right now that heaven is a project that is going somewhere. Whew, that's the gospel of the kingdom. See, God committed himself there in the garden to work within his creation through mankind, through obedient mankind. And that's the way that it's all designed to work. He is not backing up on that reality. This is why it matters that he sent Jesus. So God has made the world in such a way that his plans for the world must be executed by a human being. I'm going to read that again. God has made the world in such a way that his plans for the world must be executed by a human being. Because that's the way he created this world to work. For him to go, ah, I'm going to try some other plan would be to him to just scratch it and do something completely different altogether. And I think there's some theologies that believe that, that we're going to melt, that he's going to melt the like Star Wars with the Death Star, you know, the... <laughs> just completely implode, but that's not what it says. That's not what he's doing. That's not what he's after. And we see that here in Revelation 5. Since, however, human sin now means that those plans require a rescue operation, God has actually called one human family to be the means through which this rescue will be put into effect, and we know that that is uh, Israel. And so when after Babel... When he divided the nations, he divided them according to the sons of God, the word says, that all the spirit beings that rebelled in heaven, he assigned them to nations. And so that those false gods that they worship were actually uh, spirit beings. And he said, but I choose Israel. I choose Jacob. That will be the one. That will be the family of promise. And he made immediately there in Genesis chapter 12, he makes promises right after Babel. He makes promise. He finds Abraham. Abraham enters the scene. And he chooses him and he makes promises to him. And through him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And there's that word, that, that actual life of Christ, that battle plan that was revealed. It was actually being spoken and almost hidden inside human flesh and worked out from generation to generation. And it had nothing to do with perfect people because we know that it went to the tribe of Judah, which is one of Israel. Jacob's sons, two generations later, Judah. God has determined to run the world through humans and to rescue the world through Israel. The problem is both humans and Israel have actually let him down. <laughs> what will he now do? And here we find ourselves at Revelation 5. When you're reading Revelation, you can't get caught up into calendars and timelines because in heaven, time is not a thing. It's it's all happening at the same time in God's mind. God's world, maybe not his mind, in his world. God stands outside of time, interacting with all time at the same time. That's why we can say that he's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. But yet you can't see the sequential things happening there in the book of Revelation. But since both have let him down, what's God going to do now? Does anybody deserve to open the scroll can anybody actually be trusted? Any body, any human be trusted? 
And then the elder says to John, don't weep. Look, here is the one that can do it, the Messiah, the truly human one, the true Israelite, the Messiah. And that's what Jesus fulfilled the promises that were uh, given to Israel. Remember uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about uh, the promises made to David that on your throne, you will not fail to have a successor, someone from your line. Well, David was from the tribe of Judah. Matter of fact, that's where we get the word Judaism. That's where we get Jewish comes from the tribe of Judah. And many of you probably know that the kingdom was split into two after David, where Israel, uh, or probably Saul made this mess if I remember correctly, but Israel was in the north and um, Judah was in the south. And the capital of Judah was Jerusalem and the capital of Israel was Samaria. So the rift between Jews and Samarians had everything to do with uh, a people group that was divided. But through the seasons of the kings that Judah typically more stayed faithful to Yahweh than the rest of Israel did. So that Jesus fulfilled the promises. And when the prophetic word, the, the promises about a coming one uh, from all the way back, even as far as the garden, the, the, the one, the seed that will uh, crush Satan's head, bruise his head and heal, bruise his heel, all of that had been Jesus all along. So it's interesting, though, when we talk about the lion of the tribe of Judah uh, as it's being pronounced, look, there he is. There's the one that can do it, the lion of the tribe of Judah. John looks, or he hears the lion of Judah, but when he looks, he sees a lamb as if, as if it had been slain with seven eyes and seven horns. So what are we to make of this? Because we realize that <laughs> even though it's the, it's the lion and his royalty and his ultimate power and his authority, even, even his magnificence uh, that rules and reigns, he did so through a lamb. So the lion is a symbol of ultimate power, supreme royalty, and a lamb symbolizes gentle vulnerability. And through the sacrifice of the lamb, the ultimate weakness of death. So we see here that we have the, the strength of heaven and the weakness of earth merged and fused together in this person of Christ forever. Heaven and earth have been fused together through the person of Jesus Christ. And he is ruling and reigning, and there he looks like a lion and a lamb. Whew. From this moment on, we are to understand that the victory won by the lion is accomplished by the sacrifice of the lamb and not in any other way. I know that sometimes we love the lion songs and we love to roar. I do love roaring, but we have to understand that through the generations, you know, the crusades and all that, there's been much damage done to the kingdom of God and actually going backwards through the idea of the lion is going to forcibly impress the kingdom of God upon the world through violence like the way the world does. And that's just never the way that Jesus does it. But rather instead, by completely undoing the work of the enemy through love and through service and laying down our life for others, that's how he did it. That's his victory. That is the lion that is the lamb. You know, when I was a young man... Um, 
I kind of learned this early. It, it was weird. We, you know, I'm Italian, and, and uh, my dad, there's a lot of, I think, in Hispanic cultures, they call it machismo. Uh, so in, in uh, I don't know what we call it in Italian culture, but, you know, we were very, like, Italian, yeah, you know, got that... <laughs> That proud, you know, the Italian stallion. We, we, Rocky movies came out when I was a kid. And yeah, my dad made a thing of that. You know, it was all it was all the, you know, talk about being on the schoolyard and hitting people with basketballs, that sort of thing. You know, and uh, anyways, he noticed that I took a, I t- kind of took a, a liking, or my identity began to kind of embrace that role. And being believers, he realized, oh, that's not good. Because I, I collected Rocky cards. I love Rocky Balboa. He took me to the theater to watch the Rocky movies, you know. I just loved it. I thought it was great, you know. And I'm out there, got me some boxing gloves, and my little brother's like, stop. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so my dad realized that he'd made a mistake in, in uh, teaching me that way. And so he started really, he took away my Rocky cards. I was so depressed. Yeah, my Rocky card collection. I got it back when I was like 18. Found it in his closet after he left the family. I was like, yes. Took away my BB gun. What's that? You know? Like, man. But he did something better. He actually taught me the truth of the gospel. It said, son, you're a lover, not a fighter. I was like, well, that's not fun. <laughs> I had to relearn that lesson in high school, but um, chipped teeth to prove it. But anyways. Um, but no, as, as a young man, I was in uh, junior high school, and, you know, I'd been churched. I'd went to church, and um, I, had, I had a good friend, and I think his name was Daniel for the life of me. I, I can't remember the guy's name, but uh, I s- slept over at his house a lot, um, you know, on the weekends and stuff during the summer. And, man, crisis hit our little friend group. Somebody stole his bicycle. And I mean, we were, we were proud of our bikes. Anybody else have like BMX bikes when they were in high school or junior high? It would have been junior high, not high school. You're driving cars then. Yeah, junior high school or even great. No, this would have been grade school. Yeah. Yeah, we had our, you know, BMX bike. Anyway, somebody stole his, uh, his I think it was like a red line. Anybody's as old as me and remembers back, that was a good bike, you know. And um, man, it was a big deal. And they reported it stolen to the uh, police department and all that. And so he lived in a different neighborhood close to the school, and I lived, actually it was right around here. Um, yeah, I lived on the other side of Precinct Line. He lived on this side. I lived over here, uh, not far from here at all. Anyways, further down into another neighborhood, which was more accessible, uh, I noticed that there was a, a new kid. He was older. I was like 12. Uh, this kid was 16, and I think he was a cousin of somebody. But he moved here from Boston, and this guy's like bad dude, right? And uh, I saw him riding my friend's bike on the other side of town. And I was like, well, that's messed up. So I reported to the cops, this kid being 16, 17, whatever he was, he went to jail over it. And when he got out of jail, he went around telling everybody that he was going to kill me. And I'm like 12. (laughs) And I was like, man, I don't know what to do. And so I ducked and dodged. You know, people say, oh, man, that guy's out there looking for you. One day he finally caught up to me, and there's there's a whole crowd of people. And he gets me in a driveway of a friend's house, and he just starts beating me up. And he's letting me, he's cussing me out. And the whole time, I'm like, I'm not defenseless, because I used to, I worked out, I had muscles and stuff. But it was something going on between me and God. I'm like, Lord, I listened when Dad told me, you know, I'm a lover, not a fighter. 
And even though this guy's way bigger than me, I heard the David and Goliath stories, you know. I know what's up. <laughs> but I was really having a God moment like, Lord, you are going to deliver me from this, right? And the guy, he had a friend with him. It's like his best friend was with him. And I said, hey, you know what? You stole the bike. You're guilty. I don't, you know, I don't know what to say, you know. Um, and there was such a sense of justice in me, uh, even at a young age, that this is wrong. You, you deserve to go to jail. You stole my friend's bike. And um, anyways, so, you know, he gave me a fat lip or whatever. Not, not, not really beat me up that bad. But um, anyways, he picked up a two-by-four and he said, now I'm going to put you in the hospital. And he was about to hit me with it. And I said right there, Lord, if he swings that thing, all bets are off. <laughs> And his buddy was like a black belt, roundhoused him right in the face and pinned him on the ground, just started beating the tar of him and said, he's a kid, man, he don't want to fight you. And just headlocked him and drug him off. And I mean, it was like something out of the Old Testament. The Lord fights your battles, you know. Uh, and I was so, so, it so marked me. When I got home, my dad got all emotional when he heard the story. So proud that I didn't fight back, you know. And I thought, you know, as a kid trying to process that, but I had a moment with God during all that. I mean, I was, you get right with God real quick when somebody's talking, you know, death threatening you. But anyways, I learned that the victory won by the lamb is a lion-like victory. Whew, that kid never bothered me again, never came around again. But Jesus, through his faithful Israel in person, he is the ultimate Israelite. You guys have heard me say this before, but he fulfilled the calling and the purposes of Israel and what they were called to do to actually rescue the planet. God did not fail in his battle plan. I love it that now Christ is actually still ruling and reigning the world, the creation uh, through mankind. He's actually opened up the way in his flesh for us to become one with him and to continue to exercise in that same way as lambs with the lion's heart to exercise the authority to implement the victory of the cross into every situation in life. Sometimes we get to, into a situation that looks hopeless and we think that God's forgotten us or left us. But I like Paula's crushing metaphor today because sometimes it squeezes and it hurts and But when God's in the middle of it, it actually, that third crushing is actually to bind up and heal the community around you. How many of you are like, okay, but what's with all the horns and the eyes? Anybody want to know what's up with the horns and the eyes? I don't know what's up with the horns and the eyes. I'm kidding. It says the horns and the eyes, so horns represent strength and authority. You know, like a bull or a ram that has horns, that's uh, symbolism for strength. And eyes uh, represents his ability to see it all. And obviously seven is the day of perfection. Uh, the number of perfection for the day that the Lord finished creation. However, though, it says that the eyes and the horns are the seven spirits of God gone out into all the earth. Has anybody ever read that and just been like, Huh? But anyways, Isaiah 11 says in verse 1, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. And Jesse is David's father, King David's father. 
and a branch shall grow out of his roots. So this is one of those prophetic promises about Christ. Very messianic uh, prophecy here. Verse 2 says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. One, the spirit of wisdom. Two, the spirit of understanding. Three, the spirit of counsel. Four, and might. Five, spirit of knowledge. Six, and the fear of the Lord. Seven, his delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the branch of his lips shall slay the wicked. If you keep on going, I, I love verse 9, but it's the one where the, the kids play with cobras and the lion and the lamb lay down together, right? And then verse 9 says, and they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that's a little bit different than this idea that we're going to fly away to heaven somewhere other than heaven coming here. This project that is going somewhere, that heaven is a project going somewhere, is that there's going to be a new heaven, a new earth, and earth and heaven will be the same place at the same time. And we actually have that going on right now through the person and the presence of Jesus Christ to where it's fully consummated. Yeah, that's right, Brad. I need to... Anytime you get challenged, I have to squeeze the, the chicken, Theo. Anyways, 1 through 10 is, is what's being referenced here in Revelation 5. So, all right, I'm going to shift gears a little bit. So the other place that in the word where the lion of Judah or Judah as a lion is talked about is right in uh, Genesis 49. Do you guys remember that story as Jacob is in is in Egypt, and uh, things are not in a negative way. They're in a very positive way with the children of Israel being in Egypt at this moment. This is before a new pharaoh comes along and enslaves them. This is where Joseph, their brother, is actually the second in command in Egypt, and he had brought his whole family. And Jacob is now like 150 years old. And he begins to pass on a patriarchal blessing the actual patriarchal blessing, the word of the Lord that has started his life. In Genesis 25, you remember that the word came to his mother when she was pregnant and had two. Jacob and Esau were in her belly and he said, two nations are in your stomach and the older will serve the younger. So that his whole entire life was actually guided and moved along by the prophetic promise of God as the seed of Christ moving through this guy's life. That's the word of the Lord partnering with human flesh. And so Jacob, as he's dying, he's actually transferring that over to his sons. And if you back up into Genesis 47 and 48, you see he blesses Pharaoh. And then Joseph brings his two sons, uh, Manasseh and Ephraim, to him. And um, he actually switches his hands because it's according to man's traditions, the firstborn would be the one that the blessing and all the stuff would go to. But according to the Holy Spirit and the word of God that was in him, he actually switched. And Joseph said, nope, dad, there. And he said, nope, this is the way it's supposed to be. Just like the way he was born. But then he goes and he begins to speak blessings over the rest of the sons. And the first couple he gives a really negative word too because of the bad things that they had done. 
And it's not that Judah had done everything right because Judah had done some bad stuff too, but he doesn't bring that up. Instead, he begins to prophetically speak the word of the Lord over Judah. And he references Judah as a lion. So in Genesis 49, starting in verse 8, is where he's blessing Judah. And he says, you are Judah. Your brothers will confess you. With your hand on your enemy's neck, your father's sons will bow down to you. Think about this prophetically as the the moving of the person of Christ, even into our day today. You are Judah. Your brothers will confess you. With your hand on your enemy's neck, your father's sons will bow down to you. Judah is a lion cub. And from prey, son, you have come up. You have bent down, lain like a lion, like a lioness. Who will rouse him? The staff will not leave from Judah, the scepter from between his feet, until tribute comes to him and the submission of the peoples is his. And this is a very messianic prophecy. That is the the word of God going with his son that will go from generation to generation to generation that actually takes its fulfillment in Christ Jesus. And then with Jesus' seed, which is who you are. Now, if you look at different translations, I can see some eyebrows raised because your Bible may not say it exactly like that. If you have a new King James, it says something like until Shiloh comes and the scholars argue about the translation of how it's supposed to look or whatever. Uh, When they found uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the the people there at Qumran, um, this is the way they translate verse 10. And I don't have a slide for it, but they said verse 10 like this, a ruler shall not depart from the tribe of Judah while Israel has dominion. There will not be cut off a king in it begin, uh, belonging to the line of David. For the staff is the covenant of the kingship. The thousands of Israel are the feet until the coming of the Messiah of righteousness, the branch of David. And this is the important part. For to him and to his seed has been given the covenant of the kingship over his people for everlasting generations. And I love it because the, the, uh, the material in the Dead Sea Scrolls that they found in the caves of Qumran actually predates the rest of the material that we had. And so according to the way they translated those verses long before, that's how they read it. And I just love it. It's a messianic promise of rulership and authority. And I could just say that there is that word of God living and abiding in you right now that the, the power of the heavens reside within you. Partner with your life. Amen? All right. So I'm telling you this because I want you right now to just take a few minutes just to think about every time where the word of the Lord has actually shifted and changed and developed uh, the life of Christ in your life. Think about where there was a word spoken over you that changed your life, where you know that the Holy Spirit was speaking and encouraged you that promises were actually deposited in you. That is the life of Christ. And what we're going to do is release because the context of the Lion of Judah is actually this uh, process of a patriarchal blessing. It can be a matriarchal blessing too but to release the word of the Lord into the next generation. That's the context. 
of the term, the lion of the tribe of Judah. There in Genesis 49, he says, you're a cub, Judah. You're a cub, but you're like a lioness and like a lion prowling. It's a family affair. That's how messianic prophetic words kind of develop. So much meat left on the bone, no pun intended. You've come up from the prey. (laughs) But God would have us to live lives and, and have a perspective that though we're lambs, that we actually come up from the prey. In other words, that we're not on the defensive, we're on the offensive. Because the authority that rests in the person of Christ that you are fused together with forever does not back down from a challenge. Has all authority, all rulership, and all reign. And we can step right into that. As a matter of fact, we're commended throughout the book of Revelation and other places in Scripture to only be very bold and courageous, to step into the victory of God. And it's not about you. It's about the word of God is actually with you and in you and partnering with you to see the project of heaven and earth becoming the same place for the glory of God to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's where we're going with this deal. There's no backing up. There's no victimization. There's only laying down our lives and watching the, the lion roar. You know, uh, I saw this cool thing about older lions that uh, older lions, when they start losing their teeth and they're not actually able to do the hunt themselves anymore and they start getting weaker, uh, but they always have their roar. And so what they would actually do would be to release their sound. And the, the roar of a lion is more felt. Do you realize that a lion, his roar can be heard from five miles away? But the older lions would roar to distract and rattle the prey while the younger lions are actually doing the hunting. Thank you for listening to the Consumed Church weekly podcast. This entire service and others can be viewed on our Facebook and YouTube channels. If you would like to partner with us in raising the next generation of kingdom bringers, you can do so at theconsumedchurch.com slash give.